0: Turn, if you would, in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. This is Palm Sunday, where we remember the uh, coming into Jerusalem of the Lord Jesus, a date predicted um, 500 years before it happened by Daniel to the very day. Next week we'll, we'll celebrate The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Let's read Ephesians 4 verse 17. Paul writes, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind. Let's pray again. Father, we come and we pray as we look at this instruction that Paul gives us by Uh, your command, that you would be pleased to uh, speak to our hearts. We don't want to hear my voice. We want to hear your voice through your word uh, speaking to us, because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to imagine that uh, you get a call from a friend, and uh, his distant cousin got a call from an attorney saying, hey, you, you had a uh, uh, a cousin who died, and he's left you his inheritance, you're the sole inheritor. And so he flies to England. He finds that this is now his home, surrounded by uh, gardens and lands. And so he calls you up, and in a 30-minute telephone call, tells you what he's seen, as he's been given the tour, the dining room, the parlor, the bedrooms, the view from, from up on top. Of, of that home, now, in thirty minutes, is he really going to communicate very much to you? No, he isn't, and that 's why many times everybody who's spoken uh, once we got past chapters one through three refers back to chapters one, two, and three, because in the little bit of time we looked at those passages, we there 's no way we can convey to you all those truths that are there, so I, I recommend. That periodically, as we're going through the rest of the Book of Ephesians, you go back and read those chapters because it's it's on that foundation of the first three chapters that um, we we are going to this next section. Uh, Ephesians one through three is about our wealth in Christ, and and it's who we are in Christ that that is really being talked. That's our wealth. Who we've Who we become in Christ. And there's a couple of prayers that we grasp it. And not only grasp it mentally. But that we possess it in our lives. And now we're in chapters 4 through 6. And here we have the practical outworkings. Of the changes that God has made in us in Christ. And we're looking in chapters 4 and 5. in the first part of 6. At five walks. These are five aspects of of the Christian uh, walk. And then in chapter 6. We'll look at the warfare. Uh, Ephesians 1. Or Ephesians 4. Verses 1 through 6. It, the first walk is the group walk. This is uh, how the church works. I don't know if, if. Most of you are too young to remember this. But back when I was in grade school. Uh, you would get a report card. And there was a whole section of it. That you got S. satisfactory or you for unsatisfactory and there were things like works well with others okay and I remember getting a you in in that section well the first aspect of the Christian walk is how do you work with others I put you in a local body and the Lord is evaluating us do I work well with others and so we We saw in this this first one, the group walk, that the first area was unity. We are to recognize and work to preserve, protect, and promote the great unity that the Spirit of God has created among believers. Do you preserve it? As you rub shoulders and as we bump up against each other, as we go through difficult times, do you work to preserve the unity? Do you protect it? And do you promote it in the local body? And then secondly, we are to recognize uh, that our own spiritual gifts, the diversity, we all have different gifts. And we're to respect and respond to other people's gifts that God has given to this local church. And then the last section was community that we looked at last week. The resultant community care creates growth in numbers and in maturity of believers towards the goal of Christ-likeness. So as we come in and we work to preserve and protect uh, the unity that we have in the Spirit of God, and as each one of us ministers our spiritual gift and receives ministry from others, that community begins to cause us to mature in Christ and to grow, to be like Christ. Christ. And this is how the church is to be. And I I like that last phrase I put up there. Each one of us was given a spiritual gift or more than one. And then as we take that gift and we develop it, God actually turns us into a gift that Christ is giving to the local church and to the church wider than that as we fellowship with other Christians outside of of uh, this local body, and we actually become Christ's gift to others, and then as we function together, and God uses us to mature other believers and to equip them for service, we are actually involved in making gifts for the Lord Jesus. Paul says, we teach every man and admonish every man that we may present every man complete in Christ. And he talked about the Thessalonians that you will be my joy and, and my crown on the day when, when Christ is revealed. Like a coach who's coached uh, some Olympic athlete and they win the gold. You know, uh, Bethany will be able to stand back as, as people from Bethany go up and, and Christ uh, approves of, of their lives. And we all had a part in that. We gave that gift to the Lord Jesus. And in a wider sense, the church as a whole, this glorious bride, were involved in making this gift for the Lord Jesus. And so this idea of the group walk, get involved in the local church, get involved in serving in the local church, The mutual ministry allows us to be greater than the sum of our individual strengths. And I want to encourage you to keep this high view of the church in your mind and in your heart. Satan wants you to evaluate everything about this local church based on on, uh, meetings and programs. But the meat of the church isn't meetings and programs, they're important. But body life is the real strength of a church. So now we're going to go into the changed life walk. This is going to be divided into two sections. I like, I mentioned this before, I like, and I'm sure the Spirit does it all the time, but on occasion, I have an opportunity, you know, you you can see the Spirit's working. Because this week, we're going to look at no tomb living. And we'll explain that as we go along. Next week, we're going to have Easter, where Christ was raised from the dead and he imparts newness of life to us. And next week, or the week following that, we're going to look at what, it, what does resurrection life look like in a person's life. And I wish I could tell you that the pulpit committee is so smart that we said, hey, let's put these two messages on the other side, either side of Easter. But the truth is, we're not that smart. Um, But God, by his spirit, does it. So we'll look at, this is the tomb lifestyle that God wants to rescue us from. And here's Easter where Jesus made it possible for us to walk in newness of life. It's just a a wonderful thing uh, to see. This second life, the changed life walk, is different than the group walk. It is my personal response to God's word and presence. My relationship with Christ is meant to change my life, to change my responses to those around me so that my life displays Christ-likeness. So in verse 17, Paul says, so this I say and affirm together with the Lord. This is the Lord's command that we no longer walk like the Gentiles. He, he had said in, in chapters 1, 2, and 3 that the Gentiles uh, were um, separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That basically, he's saying they're not, we would say today, they're not believers in Christ What is the life of someone who's outside of Christ like? How does God uh, look at it? And Paul's already reminded us what guides that kind of life. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, where he says, listen, we walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the the spirit that is now working in the children of disobedience. And we lived according to the lusts of the flesh, Li- that life is under the control of the world and the devil and the flesh. That's what the unbeliever's life is like. And in Ephesians 4, 17-19, Paul's going to present the main qualities of this downward path of the old walk. And he's going to look at futile thinking, darkened understanding, alienated from God, and moral Insensitivity. So let's look at this old walk that he wants us to no longer walk. He says, in the futility that you walk no longer as the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind. The word futility means empty, without any lasting purpose, nothing of eternal value. Paul describes this in Romans 1, verses 20 to 21. For since the creation of this world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what he has made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Stephen Hawking, one of the most brilliant uh, scientists who's ever lived, had an interview in Time magazine, and they said, Do you think there's a God? He said, No. All there is is the physical laws of the universe. They said, Do you think there's life after death? He said, No. You're like a computer, and when the computer dies, all the programming dies. Feudal, empty thinking, as far as eternity is concerned. Brilliant. Nothing of eternal value. And there's a whole group of people, and that's their mantra. That's what they whisper in the dark. There's no God. There's no judgment for how I live after this life. There's other groups of people, and and for them it's got to work good, got to work, got to work, got to be good, got to be good, because God's going to weigh. Not true either. And so there's these little mantras, these little ways of thinking, but they're futile. They're empty as far as understanding real spiritual reality. Jesus Christ, Paul told Timothy, has come to, rele- to reveal life and immortality through the gospel. Is there a God? Yes, there is. Does how you live in this life matter? Yes. Does what you do with Jesus Christ matter? Yes. And then he goes on and he says uh, in the next verse, being darkened in their understanding. Again, in Romans 1, 21 to 22, but they became futile in their speculations. There are different ways of putting things together that, that cut out God and, and cut out eternity. And their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And I want to be respectful, but I want to be clear. No one who dies without Christ and wakes up in hell immediately says, well, this was a smart move. They don't get it. They don't understand 2 Corinthians 4 4 tells us in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. If you've been involved in witnessing, you've experienced this. Why would you not want to know with certainty your eternal destiny? Futile speculations. Rather than God's word leads to blind minds and darkened understandings. And it's not just on salvation. Um, Colson's ministry published, uh, they just went through and took studies done by by non-Christians and said, is it better to live together before marriage, or to live together or to get married? And in the studies they showed that spousal abuse, uh, uh, when you live together, the breakups occur, the length of time being together is shorter than marriage. Uh, uh, there's more uh, abuse, physical and emotional abuse in the relationship. There's um, just in every category, it, it was head and shoulders above marriage. And he said, but if you go out on the street and... and and pick a a little old lady who's well-dressed, obviously uh, well-educated, and say to her, is it wise for someone to live together, to try it out before they they get married? He said, nine times out of 10, they'll say yes. And yet all the studies say it's not true. They just can't see it. They're darkened. In their understanding. They're alienated from God. Excluded from the life of God. It says, um, being darkened in their understanding, verse 18, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. They're strange from God as the source of life. They've rejected God's revelation of himself and they move farther and farther away, becoming increasingly ignorant of God and his purposes. And by the way, more and more open to deception. We, we showed last week that one of the, the goals of the local church is, is that uh, he says up in... Uh, Verse 14, as a result, we are no longer children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Satan has a lot of deception out there. And being alienated from God, it opens the door for them to be deceived. And the result is, um, there's this ignorance about God, about reality, and it. It's because of the hardness of heart. And then it says they become calloused. Calloused means having arrived at a condition of freedom from pain. When I had an older brother who was four years older than me, I don't exactly know why he did this, but during his high school years, um, he probably saw too many karate movies or something, but he would have a brick, and he would just hit that brick with his hand like this. The whole time he was studying. And he built up a callus. Along the edge of his hand. And you know what. He he could put that over a candle flame. and He wouldn't feel it. He could stick a pin in it. And it didn't hurt. Because the callus was there. And because they're alienated from God. Because they're moving farther and farther away. Because their heart. Is being hardened towards God's truth. They become callous. They they become uh, free uh, from a feeling of guilt and from a fear of judgment. Their conscience becomes um, calloused. And so he says, verse 19, and having become callous, they've given themselves over to to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Thinking and actions go hand in hand. How you think matters. And ultimately, it shows up in your actions. In Romans 1, Paul goes on to categorize long series of sins that flowed from mankind's rejection of God's revelation of himself. There is a loss of a sense of consequences of sin. Instead, there's a determination to gratify self that leads to unthinking indulgence. We have the oddest things today. Friends with benefits. Designer drugs. And people think, well, that can't possibly hurt me. It's been designed. And they find themselves going in a level of, of foolishness that once upon a time they would have said, oh, I'll never be there. Jim Belusi, I was told by a, a person in Chicago, once led his youth group in scripture memorization. And he died of an overdose in a hotel room at the height of his career. I'm sure if you had told him at some point, that's where it's going to lead. He would say, never. But that's where sin takes you. That's where the tomb life takes you. Now, the question comes, can a Christian walk this way? Well, one answer is, maybe he's not a believer. The Lord said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, actions show what you believe, and so if someone's not doing the will of God, it it may show that there's no real life there, that they're part of that group that uh, do not understand. Uh, obviously, you know uniformity is a is a, a pet peeve. Um, But the power and danger of uniformity is seen there. Uniformity is outward similarity created by external pressure. So people act like believers when the pressure's there. Maybe it's parents, maybe it's church, maybe it's Bible school. But when they leave it, when the pressure's removed, uh, it goes away. Because uniformity does not affect the heart. And so you have kids, they grow up in Sunday school, they know all the right words. And then they become teenagers, or college students, and they walk away from the faith. Well, they never really, it's possible they never really had the faith. They just were aligning themselves up with the group they were with at that time. There is a possibility that they are believers. Um, believers can live, there's a word in the Bible, carnal. It's really the word fleshly. Uh, Believers can live carnal lives or fleshly lives um, where they're believers, but they're living under the control of the flesh rather than the spirit. God alone knows the heart, but if we're completely comfortable living in sin, we need to examine ourselves as to why that is. And carnality begins with a desire to live independently from God. I, I've shared with you before, there, at Kansas Bible Camp years ago, there was a guy by the name of Wayne Bird, and he was in charge of the staff. And so if a staff person broke the rules, they would have to have a Wayne talk. And, and kids hated these Wayne talks because Wayne, when they would come in, Wayne would say, now you're here because you know Jesus, right? Yeah, And you're here because you want to serve the Lord Jesus, right? Yeah. Well, now, why would a person who loves the Lord Jesus and wants to serve the Lord Jesus do what you've been doing? One kid told me I'd rather be beaten than have to go to a Wayne talk. (laughs) But do you understand what Wayne was doing? Wayne was saying, is the center of your Christian life Christ or not? are you a real follower of Christ or not you're you're at that critical age teenagers yes you've come out of Sunday school you've come out of church you've maybe come out of a Christian home you have all the right words but we're not seeing a lifestyle that's right and so my question to you is how do these two things line up you're committed to Jesus Christ but you're not committed to obeying the rules that we've we've laid out here. And so the scripture says: listen, if um, we find ourselves comfortable with sin, we need to ask ourselves why that is. And that's what Wayne what was doing. In the next four verses, he talked about how to be changed. And he's going to describe the process. Putting off the old self. Learning Christ. Being renewed in your thinking and putting on the new self. This is something that all of us as Christians have to go through. And we, we make our own choices. This is not a group thing. This is you and the Lord Jesus. Your relationship with the Lord Jesus. So he talks about putting off the old self. Um, The old self is the former manner of life we lived before we knew Christ. Now, sometimes when we're we're saved um, at a young age, it's really the life of the unbelievers around us. Uh, See, they're all living in the tombs. They're dead, spiritually dead, they're dead in their trespasses and sins. They're living in the tombs. We have been made alive in Christ. We're invited to come out of the tombs and, and to live in this newness of life. But when you put on the when you leave the old self on, you're leaving that old lifestyle there, you're living in the tomb. Can you imagine if Lazarus, about a month after Christ raised him from the dead, his sisters come in, and he's packing a bag. And they said, what are you going to do? I missed the tomb. It was cool there, quiet. I've, I've connected with DoorDash. They're going to drop off food every day. Don't worry about me. I have decided to go back and live in the tomb, and I put my grave clothes back on. But we do that, don't we? And the Lord Jesus says, I want you to put off those old grave clothes. I want you to, no more tomb living. And so he talks about that. He says, um, down in, in verse 22, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. The old self was crucified uh, Was crucified with Christ at salvation. Romans 6, 6. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. The old lifestyle, I was a slave to sin. Now, that old lifestyle has been put away. I've been made alive. And so I need to put away that, that old self. In baptism, we picture that truth that the old life has been buried so that in Christ, when we come out of the water, we're saying, I'm going to walk in newness of life with Jesus Christ. But it is a daily choice of putting off that old lifestyle. The old self was under the power of sin, which focused on self-centered desires, which were deceitful, as he says here. In accordance with the lust of deceit, because they promise joy but fail to provide it. I once told a Bible study I was having with some guys. When when you're lost, you're like the, a mule. You know, has blinders on, and the guy has a carrot on a on the end of a stick in front of the mule. And every time the mule takes a step forward for the carrot, the carrot moves farther down the road. And and the world is caught up with, oh, this will satisfy, oh, this will satisfy, and they pursue it. That little phrase, if I only had blank, then I'd be satisfied. Never will happen. And so these sins that we're pulled into are like stains on clothing. So he says you need to see the old self for what it is and put it off like filthy clothes. Sometimes I spill something on my shirt and I don't notice it. And my wife will say, go change your shirt. Well, that, that old lifestyle is like that. Tomb living. Living in grave clothes. Put it off. And then he talks about learning Christ. Verse 20. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus. This See, this is about my response to Christ. This isn't your response to Bethany. Now, Bethany, as we saw this morning, disciplines but ultimately, it is about a person's response to Jesus Christ. See, Christianity is not a series of rules. It is at its heart a relationship with Christ. A person hears about Christ and learns who he is. There's a, and, and they put their faith in Christ. And then there's a, a desire to know him and become like him. The Lord said in Matthew eleven twenty eight. To 30, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon, me, or upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The Christian life is about learning who Christ is and about the salvation we have in him. As we learn who Christ is in a greater way, the more Our faith grows. You know, we all grow at different rates. Sometimes in our own lives, sometimes we we take bounding forward, sometimes we go at a snail's pace. But the point is, you should be able to pound a stake and later on look back and see that you moved. If you're not moving, you have to ask yourself the question, why? Why is there not change in my life? And it's this relationship with Jesus Christ. And the standard of of the measure for my growth is Christ-likeness. Becoming more like him. Because at its center, the Christian life is Christ. Because the truth is in him. Go to verse 24. Or verse 23. And that being you that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. This is the work of the Holy Spirit and the Word. Romans 12, 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. I like the Phillips translation. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. But let God remold your mind from within so that you may prove in practice that the plan of God for you is good, meets all his demands, and moves towards the goal of true maturity. We are surrounded by a world that lives in tombs. And the world wants to squeeze you into its mold. To affect your thinking and your values and your actions. Live like us. Live in grave clothes. Live in the tombs. And the Lord Jesus said, listen, I died so that you don't have to live that way. And you need to renew your thinking. The commandments or the principles in the epistles are really simply... The Spirit of God laying out in principle form how Jesus lived. If you follow the principles of the New Testament, you know what will happen? You'll live like Jesus did. And so you come to the Word. And the Word begins to to speak to your heart. In um, 1 Corinthians 3.18, that will be up on screen later, it describes this renewing work or I guess it's there now um, of the Holy Spirit through the word. It says, "But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit." This is why you have to be in the Word. When, when we teach the word here, we can lay out the principles, and sometimes we come up with illustrations. But for the word of God to speak for your individual life, you have to be in the word. I suppose the spirit of God could, to a speaker, say he's going through some principle, and all of a sudden he says, and by the way, Fred, you need to change this in your life. spirit of God could do that but God graciously corrects us in private. So I'm reading the same thing in the word of God and the spirit, I'm looking into the mirror of the word of God and suddenly the word of God reflects how I really live and how distorted my image is compared to the picture that the word of God wants me to be like Christ. And then the spirit of God says, what are you going to do about that? Now sometimes you use an illustration and I I don't know if it's been true for you but it's been true for me where the illustration the person from the platform picked was awful close to home. And I always wondered later is that because I'm not developing a sensitive spirit to the word of God in my own private time that God's got to almost say you better click. You know, he graciously didn't give the guy my name But he he pointedly pointed out what needed to change. The Lord Jesus wants our lives to be different. He died, not just to save you from hell, so someday you'll be in heaven, but so your life can be different now. And so he says, listen, there's this process where... We learn of Christ. We want to be like him. There's this new desire. He shows us Christ in the word and he shows us where we're falling short. And he holds out the new self and says, put it on. And so there's the putting on of the new self. That's who we are in Christ. That's what we looked at in the first three chapters. It's where we want to live. He's made us a new creation, created, he says here, verse 24, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. Old things are gone. The old lifestyle is to be gone. New things have come, which is um, in the likeness of God, which has been created in righteousness and holiness and truth. Someday it will be ours. First John 3 2. We know when he appears, we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. And then there's that process in this life. Notice the descriptions there in verse 24. And righteousness, that's our actions towards others. Holiness, that's our, our reactions towards God as God looks at our life. And truth. Not, not caught up in the deception of the old life. But were genuine. And so he says it's time to make some choices. Put off the old self. It, it's really a word for putting off a set of clothes. Deceit, see, see the old self for what it is. Deceitful, destructive, deadly. And reject its way of thinking, its values, and its behaviors. Learn Christ. Be in the Word so the Spirit can draw your heart to Christ so you develop a confidence in Him and and the fact that His work has the power to change your life. And then give you a desire to be like Him. Renew your thinking. Let the Spirit of God remold your thinking through the Word. And put on the new self. By faith, choose to follow Christ and his actions. I wanted to share a poem with you as I closed. It's by Sherwood Wirt. But I have searched and not found it. But I'll summarize it for you. Sherwood Wirt says, he's talking as a Christian. He said, missed the tomb went back, started to roll the stone back over the door so I could get about my business of collecting centipedes and grubs and worms and and other specimens of modern culture. And suddenly there was a voice saying, that's not going to be allowed. Why? The voice said, because it's Easter and Christ has left his tomb and he's coming for yours. And that's what this passage is about. Our world is involved in tomb living, wearing grave clothes, things that reek of sin, reek of death. And Christ says, I don't want that for you. And Easter says, he won the victory over sin and death. He gives the power to walk in newness of life. And the week after Easter, we're going to look at five areas where he says, this is how the world does it. This is how you walk if you walk in obedience to Christ, if you live in the power of the Spirit. And he's going to give practical examples of what it means to have a changed life. Easter, we'll celebrate Easter. We'll say, hallelujah, Christ is raised from the dead. But do we live Easter? Hallelujah. Christ is raised from the dead. And it's possible for me to live. Not in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2. But in verses 3 through 14 of chapter 1 of Ephesians. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that there's a great victory that we're going to celebrate next week. Your son won. He won and paid the penalty of our sin. He won. And he defeated the power of sin. And Lord we pray. That you would open our eyes. To who your son is. To how great is his victory. That we might not. Live in the tombs. And wear grave clothes. And walk amongst the dead. And they don't see any difference. May our lives. Reflect. Reflect the newness of life that Christ gives because we ask it in his own precious name.